0: Talking books on sock 106 to 108. There are many, many, many shades in between. You know, complete denial of work or refusal of going to work, and being this kind of. 24 seven hour slave and I think that we need to as a working society reclaim the means of self-preservation because we don't want to hurt ourselves simply for the sake of a job we need to put our jobs and our careers into perspective And to stand back and to say to ourselves, you know, we do have a lot of freedom and that we shouldn't give that freedom up or pretend it doesn't exist. The paranoia is quite interesting because it's part of that black and white mentality that I was speaking about earlier. The sense that if we don't put up with the way things are at the office, then the alternative is ruination complete abandonment by society and that makes us afraid but it also makes us paranoid as well and I think that double bind is all part of our power structure that we need to we need to kind of contest a little bit and and test our own ability to empower ourselves to do things differently.
1: Do you work to live or live to work and how and why do many jobs feel so all-encompassing? Hello how are you and you're very welcome to talking books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to examine the ritual of work and the possibility of creating a post-work future. Writer and academic Professor Peter Fleming talks the social and psychological impact of work-obsessed culture and literary scholar James Booth tackles the poetic reputation of Philip Larkin and how this complex and often controversial poet made art out of life. This is a show about working and living, obedience and sacrifice, job satisfaction and the creeping encroachment of work over our private lives. According to a recent Gallup poll, only 13% of the global workforce considered themselves engaged or stimulated by their jobs, while the remaining 87% considered themselves deeply alienated. Peter Fleming is Professor of Business and Society at Cass Business School, City University, London. His notable reads include Dead Man Working, Charting Corporate Corruption, Authenticity and the Cultural Politics of Work. Well, Peter's latest publication, The Mythology of Work, How Capitalism Persists Despite Itself, is a startling examination of the social, psychological and economic impact of wage-slave culture and all its woes. In The Mythology of Work, Peter states, it is no exaggeration to suggest that work has become one of the new false universals of our time and as such a universal reference point for everything else. Devoid of any moral or social worth. Now, while Peter paints quite a frightening picture of neoliberal capitalism and cites job related suicides, office induced paranoia, fear of relaxation, and cynical corporate social responsibility campaigns, he has the research and expertise to back it all up. Peter writes, The sheer amount of time spent at work is totally disproportionate to the vital tasks that need to be achieved and argues smartphones and laptops have facilitated the creeping encroachment of work over our private lives. He warns the true apocalypse is not an unthinking, frightening future, but a very flat and linear present. Well, over the weekend, I had a very revealing chat with Peter. I asked him, is work an ideology?
0: ideology that has taken on very, very natural characteristics. It's an ideology in the sense that it's socially manufactured, the division of labour, the types of work that we get today, and the employment systems and management systems we have. But it's all been delivered to us under the rubric of necessity. In other words, if we weren't doing the jobs that we are doing today, then we would somehow lose our means of survival. So it's one of the last socially made, man-made things that we still take for granted as part of nature. And so what I've been trying to argue is that, sure, we have to work to live. But if you think about it, what we're working for is for money. So my job, for example, in a lecture theatre isn't really related to the maintenance of my body, you know, so that I can survive. It's related to receiving man-made kind of vouchers called money. And that, that means that it's actually quite far removed from what we think of as part of our natural survival uh, mechanisms. So what I want to argue is that it's taken on ideological tones when we live in a society that says, you know, you have to work or, or basically face ruin, financial and economic, and, and in the last instance, death, because you aren't actually maintaining your organism anymore. So that's one of the things I'm trying to challenge with this book.
1: Peter, would it be pushing it to say we're sacrificing ourselves for work?
0: Well, it seems to have developed that way, that what used to be a means for achieving certain goals in our society, very worthwhile ones, you know, think of a healthcare system, think of transport systems, banks used to be, um, (laughs) that's probably a little bit controversial, a very important part of our our society. And those goals are very important and we all went to work because we received money so that we could have a life that uh, was enjoyable. But it seems that work has now become the be all and end all of almost everything that we do to the extent that we are willing to sacrifice our time, our relationships sometimes, our emotional well-being, and much of our life are stressed kind of Hours and hours and weeks and weeks of of non-stop work. And so it seems to have gotten out of hand. So this kind of Frankensteinian monster, if you like, has kind of gotten out of hand and is now controlling us. And we don't seem to be able to see beyond a society in which work would be then put back in its reasonable place. It's one thing among many other things that we do.
1: Now, you make a very coherent argument on how work has become almost a universal reference point for how we are living our lives and how we understand our lives. But I'm just wondering, do you think we're paid for what we're worth?
0: Well, that's a very, very good question because we are certainly working more now than ever, but... Our performance and our productivity has become slightly detached, if you like, from the wages in which we were received. And economists tell this to us all of the time because if you look at the trends over the years in labour productivity, they've been slowly moving up, you know, until recently. But if you look at the way in which wages have developed over the last 20, 30 years, they've been dropping. So there's been a divergence between the pay we get and the work, and the amount of work, and the type of work we're doing, and So I think that's an important question that just because we work in a particular job, in a particular role, doesn't necessarily relate to the money we get. And at the end of the day, it's not only an economic question because, for example, if you're an economist, you would say... Why is it that a senior corporate executive now is making 187 times more than the average worker? Is it because they're working harder? Well, of course not, because no one can work harder than that percentage, harder, given the limitations of the human body. Are they adding that much more to the firm? Well, probably not, you know. Uh, Is there a shortage in the... Is it supply and demand? Well, no, there doesn't seem to be a shortage of people in the marketplace for that type of... You know, from an economic point of view, you could say that doesn't make sense. But it's also a philosophical point of view, because for some reason, everything in our society has been inverted. Some of the most socially necessary jobs, I would say, for example, a nurse in a hospital in a healthcare system, you know, drivers in a transport system, some of the most important roles are the least paid. Midwives are a great example, you know, who have been here in uh, England who have been treated so badly and their role is so important, fundamental to life itself, some would argue. So there seems to be an inversion. So the, the, the most socially necessary and important and worthwhile jobs are the ones that seem to be getting paid the less and the ones that have been hit the hardest by the recent socio-economic policies of governments over the last 10 years, whereas the ones that probably aren't only neutral but are quite negative to society, especially in the post-2008 financial crisis, they seem to be getting rewarded more and more and more. And I think people are slowly waking up to the idea that it's all been a bit of a con job our work is related to our income, is related to the economic worth that we add to society, is a bit of a scam. And people are starting to sort of wake up to that idea now.
1: And Peter, you have great stuff on the earnings that dog walkers can actually get, and you compare them to nurses' salaries. And it's quite a disparity, isn't it?
0: It's a strange disparity, but it's quite indicative of the way in which our socioeconomic tre- trends are unfolding. When I wrote that piece in a, in a newspaper A couple of months ago, actually a lot of dog walkers come out and um, I got a lot of hate mail (laughs) because they said, actually, our our job is worth way more than nurses, what nurses do in society. So I found that kind of mentality quite, I guess, you know, understandable, defending one's own uh, role. But it is quite striking that you have these menial servicing the rich roles in our society that are now simply because of the proximity to the rich are getting paid way, way more. You know, life coaches, for example, or personal trainers and dog walkers are getting paid way more than a nurse who's sitting on a cancer ward, for example, tending to a dying patient and doing all of the worthwhile things that someone should be doing there. It is quite a troubling disparity.
1: Now, you paint quite a grim picture of office, office life and you have some fascinating research into the tyranny of email. And I was quite surprised to see that on average, workers spend up to 36 days a year on their email. That's crazy. So you can understand lots of people's issues about like fear of relaxation and anxiety and sleeping problems. Because if they're always on and always feel they have to reply to these unending emails... Life becomes very challenging, doesn't it?
0: It does become very challenging and also it takes on quite addictive elements or qualities. If you type into Google, how do I quit my job, it's third in order to the first most popular Google search is um, how to quit smoking. And I think that's quite an interesting analogy because people find it absolutely visceral. When they are denied access to their email, even though they know that you know uh, uh, it's uh, it's not a pleasurable experience, so it's an addiction to non-pleasurable experience, which is quite amazing. And I don't think it's only in the technology. So everyone blames this on the proliferation of mobile technology, in particular. And in sociology and social theory, we call that a technological determinist argument, simply because you are blaming it on the technology rather than the social structures that are guiding. And directing and putting to use the technology, and those social structures are more important. And when I discuss this with my MBA students, who are a wonderful, wonderful group of students that I teach at the Business school I, I test this hypothesis, and we talk about addiction to work, and you know, always on the email, work email, you know, almost, you know, some some people through the night, you know, check it at three o'clock in the morning, you know, to see what if there's an email from New York, and I say, you know. Why is this? And they say it's due to the the, the technology because it's, all, it's always with me. And I say, well, you know, it's not making you do it. It's not making you check your emails. There's not a little man in the in the in the actual physical technical infrastructure forcing you to do it. Just turn it off. So I asked some of them to turn their just as an experiment, turn off their mobile phones. And the physical pain, the anguish, and the stress and the anxiety that that uh, suggestion induces tells us that we really do have a problem with the way in which We have deployed email in our society because it really should be making life easier. But again, like the Frankensteinian monster, it seems to have come back and made things way, way, way worse, unfortunately.
1: Do you think that workers today have become so paranoid that they've actually forgotten or maybe not that they've forgotten, but they just they're failed to see maybe in some ways that they have agency and they have choices, however slim those choices seem? that they have the agency to make those decisions and to take oh, decisions. Oh, definitely.
0: If we didn't have agency, then nothing would change in society. There'd be no history. So, you know, we all have the choice and the, even the minute a little bit of freedom to do things differently. And one way in which a power structure, for example, the one that we're in now, makes it seem unchallengeable, and inevitable and immutable is to basically say, well, this is as good as it gets. And in fact, if you'd want to challenge this, then it's going to be way, way worse. Your life is going to be awful and you're going to end up under a bridge, you know, drinking yourself to oblivion, like all of the other people that decided to opt out of the system. So it's a very kind of false black and white situation that we're presented with. But what I suggest is that there are many, many, many shades in between, you know, complete denial of work or refusal of going to work and being this kind of 24 seven hour slave there's many in-betweens and I think that we need to as a working society reclaim the means of self-preservation because we don't want to hurt ourselves simply for the sake of a job we need to put our jobs and our and this is hard to do but uh, our careers into perspective and to stand back and to say to ourselves you know we do have a lot of freedom and that we shouldn't give that freedom up or pretend it doesn't exist. The paranoia is quite interesting because it's part of that black and white kind of um, mentality that I was speaking about earlier. The sense that if we don't put up with the way things are at the office if we don't put up with um, being bombarded with emails if we don't put up with this unhappy uh, life that some people, not everyone, some people are very lucky to find a labour of love that is also their paid employment, but for a large group of people who are deeply unhappy, if we don't put up with it, then the alternative is ruination, complete abandonment by society. And that makes us afraid, but it also makes us paranoid as well. And I think that double bind is all part of our power structure that we need to, we need to kind of contest a little bit and, and test our own ability to empower ourselves to do things differently.
1: And that psychological bind really spills into family life or hobbies, friendships, whatever it is, because it becomes deeper and deeper and deeper. And as you say, you can almost, workers then create these compulsive or addictive patterns of behaviour, don't they?
0: They certainly do. You know, there are some cases, I don't want to be completely negative, there are some cases in which someone has a labour of love and, you know, it connects in with their paid employment nicely, for example, a writer or something like that. I go, I've got a little bit of this as well. When I, I'm very lucky when I'm writing my book. I don't really see it as part of my paid employment. There are some situations, then you just want to go forever, right? So um, I'm a binge writer, so I can go for three or four days to the discontent of my wife, unfortunately. But, um, but in situations where the job is not really giving us anything but we feel still compelled to check emails to be at the office constantly where it's more of a performance driven by fear then definitely that can spill over into family life and create a lot of problems because what tends to happen is that we know that we can't take out our frustrations at the office and never to the boss because of the paranoia we talked about before. But it's got to come out somewhere. You know, we can't keep that pent up all the time. And when it usually comes out in the most socially relaxing places, in the home or, you know, drinking too much. Alcohol problems, alcohol abuse in the, in the city of London, for example, is, is rampant and it's kind of structured around these over ritualised kind of work performances that I've been talking about. So it does come out, but it comes out the frustrations that we have and the legitimate ones usually come out in very unhelpful ways. And that's that family at kind of taking it out in the home or whatever. So there, there 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 are definitely negative spillover effects that we need to be that we need to be worried about. To the point where some people literally don't have families because they know it's going to be a drag on their career which is one of the saddest things i've come across where i've seen people preparing cvs for jobs in which they put in very bold letters on the front no dependents because they know that if they are going to be sacrificed at the altar of work for the firm that they're going to be employed by then first of all they will look less favorable candidates if they've got dependents because Family tend to want a bit of a balance, so you get more of a work life balance and we're afraid that that will mean that we're less attractive to the organisation we want to work for. And also I think there's also a why would I why would I want to do that to a family if I want to be in this
1: role? Can I ask you about the French philosopher Foucault? You quote him in your book on there is no liberalism without a culture of danger. Mm -hmm. How does that relate to workplace dynamics and what does that tell us on where we're going wrong today?
0: That relates to uh, the idea that if you want to build a society around the notion of competition, which is the way in which since Adam Smith would come up with his famous doctrines of what a liberal capitalist society would look like, be based on pure market-based competition. And then you have that type of competition in the labor workforce, where I know that however bad things get at my, at my job, luckily I've got a nice job, but for many who don't, you know, if I don't put up with it, then there's hundreds, if not thousands, of people willing to do that job for less than what you're getting paid. Then one becomes afraid of losing everything. Again, we lose perspective as an either-or situation in which, in a so-called competitive labour market social situation, the dangers of being completely led to ruination, financial ruination, are always ever-present. And... What I've tried to argue is, and I think the, the philosopher Michel Foucault was very good on this, basically he said, you know, the danger is real. You know, if I suddenly could not, if I suddenly got fired today, or if I lost my job today through the redundancies or whatever, the dangers are real. I couldn't pay the bills, um, you know, uh, like many work, uh, middle-class people and with the working poor in particular feel this, you know, from paycheck to paycheck, we are we are kind of, you know, always ever in danger of, of that situation. But there's also a cultural element. In other words, it's a rhetoric we're told constantly that basically this society is great and innovative and, and going places because you know you're in danger of being replaced and losing everything at every stage of the game. And that creates a deep even if I don't lose my job, even if I um, and are in a job for a long, long time, that still seeps into this kind of sense of paranoia and the sense of, well, I really need to make sure that I keep everyone happy, the customer. I need to keep the boss happy. I need to keep the firm happy. Because otherwise, otherwise, if I speak up and say, this is not uh, what good for me,
1: then I'm um,
0: always, I'm always perhaps on that next list that goes around for the next set of redundancies. And I don't want that.
1: And how do you think David Graeber has challenged corporate systems and neoliberal values? What do you think he's offered in terms of the debate? And what meaningful points do you think he's offered? Um, I think
0: he's interesting because um, in particular, his book on on debt, um, I think really timely to question this uh, way in which uh, systems of control have changed. Um, they've changed, become very personalised. In fact, it's on me right now, my credit card's in my front pocket. Beautiful way of controlling, um, of shifting control to the individual through debt. And debt is just rampant now. It's out of control. So I think what David Graeber is very, very, very good on is saying, okay, how do, we, how do we challenge that? How do we actually come up with a rhetoric that refuses and that Uh, contests the idea that I should not have to pay back that money. Um, The idea that that money and that debt is actually part of a broader socio-political system that is related to power rather than me being a responsible person having to pay back my debt. Now, I hope my bank manager is not hearing any of this because he'll probably fall down and kind of have a heart attack if he heard any of this because, you know, it's so... Deep seated that we are, if we get into debt, then we are morally required to pay it back. But the the, the problem is, is, that in our society, we can't actually do anything without debt. If i if I want to be a student, I've got to get a debt. If I want to be part of the middle class, I've got to get a debt. If I want a house, I've got to get a mortgage. I've got to get a debt. So all of these, all of these things that will, that allow me to function as a normal person. Are attached to a debt, and so I think David Gray is very good on showing us how to refuse that. Um, whether whether we can do it on a mass practical, a mass level that is practical and that can actually challenge um, challenge all of the all of the debt that we seem to be uh, building up, I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure. I think it requires a lot of organisation. But this is why people were watching the Greece situation quite closely because it was more than just. Greece having to owe the EU or pay back um, its installment to the IMF. It was all about the moral, political infrastructure that justifies high levels of indebtedness. And the, Greek, and the and the Greeks tried to challenge it, and that was what made it so interesting.
1: Last question, Peter. Do you think when we look at debt, we, when we look at all the inequalities in the world and we look at the way we're living our lives now and our obsession and our addiction for work do you think we'll be wasting the same amount of time in the workplace in 50 years time do you think we'll have learned from these pressing books that come out every year on how we're understanding and how we're living our lives do you think we learn uh, finally and maybe have a greater work-life balance
0: I think we'll have to do that um, anyways. I think we will have to, do. otherwise it's going to be very sad because actual employment is drying up uh, through a whole set of reasons I won't go into. Technological, some of them are structural, others are policy based. And so in 50 years time, we just won't simply need all of these jobs that we have at this at this stage and we see that trend really underway right now. So if we don't, put work back in its place we're going to have this huge disconnect between what we are ideologically taught and conditioned to accept in society having a job is great working yourself hard is really good the actual jobs there to fulfill that ideology there's a major disconnect coming so i think simply through necessity we are, in 50 years' time, and maybe this is my optimistic streak, um, we are going to be saying to ourselves, oh, th- look back at 2015, how crazy was that? We've got it so much better now.
1: Peter Fleming from City University London The Mythology of Work How Capitalism Persists Despite Itself is published by Pluto Press and retails for in around 20 euros I strongly recommend you read it Welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, tonight's show is all about getting the balance right between work and our personal and private lives. Next up, we're going to look at one of Britain's most popular poets, Philip Larkin, and unpack the sacrifices this talented man made for his art. Without doubt, Philip Larkin is one of the most popular British poets of the 20th century, Born in Coventry in 1922, this poet, novelist and librarian produced notable collections such as The North Ship, The Less Deceived, The Whitsun Weddings and High Windows. Now, in his lifetime, Larkin was prone to making unpalatable comments on issues of race, politics, identity and culture, which inevitably turned some of his loyal readers off his poetry. But do we have to like our poets to appreciate their creative genius? Is there a requirement for poets to live a virtuous life? Professor James Booth is a literary advisor to the Philip Larkin Society and the co-editor of its journal. Well, James's latest publication, Life, Art and Love, unquestionably redeems the public image of Larkin as a monster, a racist and porn addict and I think in some way restores the balance or at least makes the poet more understandable. Well, I caught up with James over the weekend and asked him, should poets be likeable?
2: Well, absolutely not. I think uh, poets are good because they use the language very well and they express things which people find answer their, uh, their needs and their feelings about life, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a likeable person. I think writing a biography, as I did with Larkin, The question was very simple, was he a nice person? And I think everybody who knew him um, thought that he was pretty well, whereas the idea of him, which had grown up since the uh, selected letters and the um, biography by Andrew Motion came out in 1992, 1993, was that he was a nasty shit. I mean, that's the kind of word which was used of him. One of the people who reviewed my book said that I was a retired professor of English rushing about the place with the literary equivalent of an air freshener trying to dispel some of the wittiness about Larkin's reputation. (laughs) So uh, he'd got a very bad reputation until recently. So I was trying to um, set the balance right, not really to defend the poetry. I don't don't think the poetry needs defending. Everybody knows he's a great poet and has always known that.
1: Would it be right in saying in some way, James, you were trying to vindicate him? Or maybe that's a bit strong that you were trying to understand him and make some of his actions more understandable?
2: Yes, I think that is certainly true, particularly in relation to the women in his life. He did get into complicated relationships, which caused him a lot of stress. And this was basically, I think, because his main impulse of his life, which is one of the reasons why he's a great poet, is empathy. As Jean Hartley said to me once, he never seemed to be wanting to put his own view forward. He was always listening to her, always a good listener, as they say, a a kind of person that women could relate to very easily. Nuala Ophelin said of him that he was a most attractive man, giving out a non-threatening message, and also beneath that, a message that he was more threatening than his non-threatening message might make him seem to appear. (laughs) Which is a brilliant description, I think, of every woman's magazine hero.
1: But despite all the kind of the goofy looks and everything, he certainly wasn't goofy in his sexual activities. What jumps off the page was that he was quite a lover to a lot of different women and a very dishonest lover at that.
2: Uh, yes, and um, I think this can be exaggerated. He really behaved very properly in all kinds of conjunctures in his life in a way you wouldn't necessarily expect. His first love affair was with Ruth Bowman, to whom he came engaged. He met her when she was 16. They didn't have sex until she was 18. He was very meticulous about that. Their relationship lasted seven years, and he broke it off very decisively uh, about a month before he first went to bed with Monica Jones, who he'd met in Leicester at the time. So there's no two-timing there. Then in Belfast, he was seduced by Patsy Strang, a very wealthy South African woman who was determined to find a poet to devote her life to. She ended up with Patrick Murphy. Uh, he was involved with her for about uh, 16, 18 months, but it was very uncomfortable. And apart from that, for 25 years, from 1950 to 1975, he was physically completely true to Monica. But uh, why did
1: you think he didn't commit to Monica? Was it that his mother maybe had him trapped in some way? Yes.
2: This certainly is an explanation. This is, I think Monica believed that. Had his mother died in her 70s, in the 1950s, would he have married Monica? The problem was, you see, both her parents died in 1959. His mother carried on living... She became very depressed in uh, 1959, 1960. That's when he wrote his great love poem, Talking in Bed, which basically is about his rather bitter relationship with Monica. They went on holiday together once a year. No one else went with them. She was a completely impossible person, I think. She was loud. She was the kind of person that uh, other people really didn't get on with very well. She was also violently prejudiced. But he was intensely loyal to her. And after her parents died, he remained loyal to her. Although at that time, of course, he'd started the next relationship in his life about 1960 with Maeve Brennan who was a library assistant in Hull but who wouldn't have sex with him because she was a Catholic and uh, wanted to obey the sacraments and uh, would would not have premarital sex although after 15 years which is about how long the relationship lasted one would think it was rather more like pre mortality sex than premarital sex but so um, it wasn't until 1975 that you could say that there was any serious two-timing and then it rapidly became three-timing Maeve says that she surrendered to him finally against her conscience. And at that point, he started the affair with Betty for complicated reasons. He started writing a poem about Maeve, Love Again, which is very unpleasant and weird, uh, a love poem. And then he stopped started the affair with Betty, who was who was absolutely delighted after having known him since 1957.
1: And Betty the, was um, his secretary, wasn't she?
2: She was his secretary, and, and she always saw herself as more useful to him than, say, Maeve, who was more airy-fairy. Betty has no poetry, and she admits this. She doesn't understand the poetry at all, but she felt that she had more to offer him. And at that point, in 1975, 1976, he wrote five of his most beautiful poems to Betty. And of course, he is a great love poet. And at that stage in his life, in his early 50s, in a relationship with A woman in her early fifties, he writes perhaps one of the most exquisite love poems of the twentieth century. Morning at last, there in the snow, your small, blunt footprints come and go. Night has left no more to show, not the candle, half drunk wine, or touching joy, only this sign of your life walking into mine. But when they vanish with the rain, what morning woke to will remain, whether as happiness or pain.
1: Glorious, isn't it? Absolutely glorious.
2: Got, it's just got three rhymes, O, I, A. It's like a sigh, O, I, A. And the, the triplet rhymes, it's just A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. It's absolutely exquisite. And to have written a simple poem like that, it's rather like Mozart, you know, to get to something as simple as that which everyone can immediately appreciate, is something only a really great poet could do. And to do that in a relationship at that stage in his life, I mean, you read the poem, it could be by a young gay person of 18 writing to a, their gay lover. Um, it, 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 there's nothing about it which tells you that it was um, an ageing librarian and his secretary.
1: But Monica, Maeve and Betty were devoted to him and really spent their lives, certainly when as he was dying. They all visited him on his deathbed, didn't they?
2: yes. And um, fascinatingly, as I say in my book, you get the reports of these few months from the summer of 1985 until he died in December. Uh, there was a, basically, it was in the summer that people were visiting him. The, the final stage was very quick. And one gets such different reports about what he said and his mood. Maeve says that he was as bright as a button and was very cheerful. And he complimented on her on what she was wearing, of course. <laughs> uh, whereas Betty says that he was looking into the middle distance and thinking about death. And um, Gene Hartley relates that he was bitterly reproaching himself for not having had more depth of feeling for the people in his life, not having realized when other people had been ill, what they were going through. So um, everybody had their different version about what, what he was going through at that stage. And I think that's, t- that's typical of him. It's because he was showing a different version of himself to everyone, but they were all him. You know, the, the letters he wrote to Maeve and his mother, these simple domestic letters with them, um, everyday activities in them are just as much the sincere Larkin as the brilliant witticisms in Letters to Amos. Although, of course, it's the witticisms in The Letters to Amos and Conquest which get quoted because, of course, they're so pithy. You know, uh, last week, a woman shrieked and vomited at a Ted Hughes reading in Ilkley. I must say, I've never felt like shrieking.
1: His poetic reputation was absolutely destroyed in ways by Andrew Motion's biography, um, A Writer's hmm. Life. Well, certainly how it presented not just his philandering or different types of relationships that he had his porn collection seemed to put some of the readers off or certainly some of his female fans off. Yes, and I'm yes. just wondering, you worked with him for 17 years. So when you read all of that, were you disappointed that the focus was, was no, picked I was up on
2: that? I was absolutely amazed that everyone was so um, shocked and horrified. When I read the selected letters, it was exactly what I expected. They were unlike Byron's letters. Mm. They were great, entertaining, witty, with all kinds of depth and, and variety in them. I, I think... To be honest, about Andrew Motion's book, it wasn't really the prime mover. There was some kind of mood at that particular time of political correctness. Mm. And perhaps the fact that Larkin's sense of humour is a kind which a lot of people don't quite get. Perhaps Andrew didn't quite get it. So when, when Larkin did himself down, as it were, right at the end of his life, he was in a miserable state in the years that Andrew knew him. A lot of people took that too seriously, you know. When, but when you look at it, his most depressing, supposedly bleak comments, uh, poetic comments, are always in some way bracing. I mean, John Bailey, my former tutor at Oxford, said that when he felt really depressed, he would read O'Bar to cheer himself up. And when you read something like Dockery and Son and you end, you always smile and chuckle ruefully at the end. Life is first, boredom then fear. So the idea that he was really sort of sincerely I mean he was um, utterly bleak as Shakespeare is and Swift is and the really great writers often Mm. are. But the the idea that that is the key to his writing I think is not true. It's got so many Mm. depths of shade and peculiar relations between Mm. humour, self-mockery and and sincerity. But he Um, was
1: quite pessimistic as a character. He saw himself as quite a failed man or a failed poet, didn't he? Well, yes, I think saw himself
2: as a failed novelist i think he said once right towards the end of his career when he was writing high windows to anthony thwait in a letter i'm not very good i'm just better than everybody else and that is so true Mm -hmm. and no other poet could have said it because it wouldn't have been true but in his case it is true Mm -hmm. and he knew it was true he still criticized like the trees He, he thought it was and and Church going, He thought they were, they were corny and people admired them for the wrong reasons.
1: You know? But churchgoing is a hugely accessible poem.
2: Yes, that's true. He's very good at widening his audience to mm. the nth degree. He, he allows almost anybody to read his poetry and not suddenly come across an ideological block or a prejudice which they can't share. He's brilliant at that. It's something which only the very greatest writers do. And in lyric poetry, of course, it's essential. Lyric poetry is only really ever about death, and love. Those are the two great themes. And the more simply and the more directly it's about those themes, the better. And Larkin, Whittles down his vocabulary and his way of talking to the essential words which we can all relate to. So, in church going, which is, is, he was dissatisfied with it, I think, because basically it irritated him that so many Anglicans wanted to insist, Maeve Brennan, for instance, who wasn't English, he was a Catholic, but um, religious people, wanted to insist that it was actually a religious poem. Patrick Garland, who made the film of him for the BBC, Mm -hmm. always insisted to his dying day that church going did show that he had a true religious feeling. Well, it's not true. He was an atheist. Mm. Uh, there's no God in that church at mm. all. Um, he says there's a fusty, unignorable silence brood. Mm. God knows how long. That's the only mention of mm. God in the whole poem. And he goes there because it's got history. It's got people's lives. It's got the decades and the centuries stretching back. And and of course, this is why anyone can go to a church, whether mm. they're religious or not. Mm. So you're right. He's got this kind of um, all things to all men quality. Mm which is, of course, why he's, why he's accused of being insincere. Um, Dryden said of the Earl of Shaftesbury in the 17th century, he was a man so various that he seemed to be not one, but all mankind's epitome. And he means that as a criticism, because he says no, one should be sincere. One should always say the same thing, and it should be correct and mean what one, mm-hmm. one actually means. Larkin can seem like he's doing that, but... Effectively, he takes on so many different persona and such a wide spectrum of rhetoric, you know, from they fuck you up, your mum and dad, mm-hmm. they may not mean to, but they do, or sexual intercourse began in 1963, which was rather late for me, <laughs> between the end of the Chatterley yeah. ban and the Beatles' first LP. You go all the way from there to the end of here, where you've got utter transcendence. It's such Past a range, pop-
1: isn't
2: it? It's a tremendous range. Yeah. Past the poppies, bluish neutral distance, ends the land suddenly in a beach of shapes and shingle. Here... His unfenced existence, facing the sun, untalkative, out of reach. Very few poets can do that, can get both ends of that range and everything in between. Because every single poem is quite different from every other poem. When I taught him, I used to have this problem. I banged my head against it several times. You do a poem like Sonny Prestatin with a, with a group and it goes well in the tutorial and you think, well, I'll find another similar poem so it can carry on next time. And you search around in his work and there is not another similar poem. Every single poem is different from every other poem. And his words are often unique. Unsatisfactory, which is a very Larkin-esque word. Here's the art, you see, life, art and love. He, he was essentially an artist. He's mm. thinking, feeling through words as a musician feels through words tones and harmonies, and so you get unsatisfactory, a very Larkin-esque word. He uses it four times in his poetry, all in the same poem in 1954, and then he never uses it again once in any of his works. He uses Attic in one poem in 1950, in a poem about sterile violence against women and so on, to burst into fulfillment's desolate Attic. And then he uses Attics in another poem in the same year, in a sublime piece of Uplift, such attics cleared of me, such absences. And then he never uses the word attic again in any other poem. He evokes attics and garrets, but he never uses the word. Mm. So when one hears the word attic and associates it with Larkin, uh, one has only got one or two places to go to. And this is true of so many words in in Larkin's work. Welcome uh, only occurs in one poem once. Extinction, which you think is a word which a young, moody, pessimistic poet would use, overuse in his, his early works about death. He he doesn't use it. He he seems to have a censor at the back of his head telling him, don't use it yet. When you're older and are closer to death, then you'll be able to use it properly. So he first uses it in The Old Fools, and then he uses it once again in a completely different context in Obard. And you can do this with so many words in Larkin. He joked in an interview about his unfinished novels in the late 1940s. They were rather like extended poems. I had a great care with words in writing them. If I used a word on page 15, I wouldn't use it again on page 115. And that tells you something, I think, about his poetry. There are so many phrases and single words in his work, which if you mention them to someone, they will immediately remember the poem it's from, almost instinct.
1: Can I ask you James, he would a very slim output, he yes. produced only three volumes and pretty much in his mid to late 50s he had quite a creative collapse. Do you think it was his problems with alcohol or how do you explain that? I know he was very frustrated within his o- overall output and he said that silence is preferable to publishing rubbish but how do you explain it all?
2: Yes, isn't that's a fascinating question, and I, I think it, it really does take you to the heart of things. Um, Andrew Motion was puzzled by it. He thought that there was a, a certain rather selfish kind of self-protective quality about it and that Larkin was trying to preserve his reputation by deliberately sort of husbanding himself and not risking moving any further. I think that's not true at all. I think it's profoundly organic, and however he lived his life, and certainly the drink and the smoking were the actual proximate causes of his death. But I think he had a particular kind of, well, I would think it's almost genetic, you know, rather like Mozart being able to hear eight tones. You know, there's something about him, something about his relationship with words, something about uh, the relationship between his own emotional life and his writing, which means that if you go through the three mature volumes, or even the four volumes, including the, the first one, The North Ship, The Less Deceived, The and Weddings, and then High Windows. It's like a flower opening. You get the bud in The Less Deceived, and you've got these rather pissy, rather beautiful poems, but um, they don't open and spread so much as the poems in The and Weddings. And his life followed a very simple tra- trajectory. He really reached his apogee, and he was aware of doing it in 1960, 1961, when he opened the the new phase of the library, his relationship with Maeve was at its happiest and he always forecast that, that once the top stopped spinning it would falter and then he would be on the downward track and if you look at his writing, it is then on a downward track, he writes gorgeous works Then the first one is um, Friday Night in the Royal Station Hotel which is a, a, a lovely word. but it's, it's more rhetorical It's more, uh, and then he does a lot of works secondary like Dublinesque esque or um, The Card Players which are based on other works of art or which... Um, go through an intermediary People don't credit Larkin with doing this, but he does do it quite a lot at this stage in his career, in the late sixties
1: and early seventies. James, he said that poetry really messed up his life. When I read that, I find that very, very sad because it was his his brilliance was his poetry. yeah, but in a lot of ways, maybe he made so much sacrifices for his poetry that his day started and ended with poetry, and that everything else took second place. So he made such sacrifices that he. He lost out on a lot of other things in life.
2: That's a a famous quote that he made to Andrew Motion at that particular stage in his life uh, that he'd decided that he would prefer the art to the life and uh, that had meant that at this stage in his life all he was left with was a fucked up life. The art had gone and all he got left was a fucked up life. There's a profound myth there, the myth of the poet Modi, the, the cursed poet, the poet who can't relate to ordinary life because he's cursed with genius, as it were. Uh, Rambo, this kind of thing. And weirdly enough, although he was a a librarian who who would have had a big reputation simply as a librarian, even if he'd never written a poem in his life, so he's not exactly your typical decadent uh, poet, um, he does share that myth. I think it's not really actually true. I think poetry was the profound satisfaction of his life. I think when it left him about eight years before he died, he was profoundly miserable. I think it left him simply because the flower bloomed and died and the words had all been used... And because his poetry is so purely existential, so purely lyrical, there wasn't anything left. And I I don't think you can explain it in any kind of moralistic way. But I think um, when you look at his relationships with women, he related to women who knew nothing about poetry, weren't interested in poetry very well. And his relationships were quite successful. He then wrote the poetry. And the one or two people who did understand it, Monica to some extent, Maeve never really did, I don't think, and certainly uh, Betty didn't. I think um, in a certain way he's more of a regular bloke than he gives himself credit for in this way. And although that romantic myth of the the poet having expended his life on his art and sort of wasted the true emotional core of it would appeal to Andrew Motion at that stage in his life and would appeal to anyone who's sort of familiar with the tradition of lyric poetry in um, France and England in the 19th and 20th century, I think he's rather falling back on it. I'm not sure it's really, it's really the truth. I've slightly tangled the way I've put that, but I, I hope I may have got it right.
1: <laughs> Last question. What is his overall poetic achievement? And should we just look at the poetry and not his questionable politics? Certainly some of his racist slurs, which I know you describe him as a provocateur with an instinct to entertain. But should we just stick to Abad or a Toads or going or some of his big poems and just park some of the other stuff?
2: Well, it's certainly true that he absolutely excludes from all his